Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. fly on the wall in my house, here are some of the things that you might hear. I'm careful not to share all of the, the details, but things like, Chuck, did you take the trash out? Uh, sorry, I forgot, honey. Uh, Chuck, did you remember to bring milk home from the store today? Uh, I forgot. Did you uh, remember that we're supposed to keep the kids tonight? Um, nope, I forgot. So one of our favorite things around our house to each other is, did you already forget? You know, whether it's walking into the room and forgetting immediately what, uh, what you were there for or some appointment, uh, it seems that the human condition, we are given over uh, to forgetting. So maybe it's preoccupation, maybe it's age, uh, maybe it's uh, selective hearing. I've been accused of that a few times. Um, brain fog, just general inattentiveness. Uh, there are a number of reasons, but it seems to be part of the human condition. We forget birthdays, we forget anniversaries, we forget appointments, we forget why we walked into the room, we forget where we uh, put our keys, we forget our promises that we made. And sadly, oftentimes, I think in light of the text that we'll look at today, we are prone to forget God, sadly. <clears throat> so I think I feel relatively sure that Joshua has spoken about the science of forgetting up here, but <clears throat> since I think you've already forgotten that, I'm gonna remind you again, that within an hour, by the time you finish lunch today, you will have forgotten 50% of what I said today. By the time you finish lunch tomorrow, it rises to 70%. And by the time we gather next week uh, to worship together again, 90% of what I've said will be gone from your memory. So we're just going to call it good here and be done, if that's all right. So we don't waste your time or my time, uh, either one. So God knows this tendency in us. Right? In fact, one of the verses in our text today says he knows our frame. He knows how we're constructed. He knows our frailness. He knows our weakness. He knows our forgetfulness. And we see in the Old Testament, specifically with Israel, that Moses wrote to them often in Deuteronomy uh, repeatedly to be careful not to forget all that God had, had done for them. And that seems a, kind of a strange way of saying it, be careful not to forget but it's just a reminder to us of the importance of uh, remembering God's goodness and his provision. And as we read this psalm today, uh, all of his care for those uh, who fear him, uh, because our default mode is to forget, is to uh, slide into apathy uh, in, in some cases. So one of the dangers in, in this is that this inattentive, Forgetfulness, this careless forgetfulness can become chronic forgetfulness and, in fact, then sinful forgiveness, forgetfulness uh, after that. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, uh, Moses writes, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen 
unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So in other words, careless forgiving can become permanent forgiving and we have to guard against that. And so this is the warning um, that Moses writes to Israel after they have seen all the manifold blessings and goodnesses and provisions of God. They had seen all the plagues played out. They had seen the, uh, the rescue in the Red Sea. Uh, they had seen manna fall from heaven and God's provision in that. They'd seen water coming out of the rock. Uh, and yet when they stood on the banks of the Jordan and the spies came back to them and provided this report to them of what was going on uh, over there, what did they do? They forgot. They forgot all of those things that God had done for them. They forgot the cloud that led them by day, pillar of fire that led them by night. God's provision and care for them just went out of their mind. And it's not only their, his provisions that they forgot, they were prone to forgetting his commandments uh, as well. Deuteronomy 8.11, take care lest you forget the Lord by your God. And here's how, by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. So their careless forgetting turned into deliberate forgetting, turned into disobedient forgetting of forgetting uh, his commandments. So they forgot Yahweh and built a golden calf, right? They forgot the first and second commandments and built for themselves an idol, um, thinking that that would, that would be their God. And it's easy for us as Christians now to point our fingers at them and to wonder how in the world could they for, be so forgetful of what God had done for them. We read in the Old Testament this ongoing cycle of apostasy, repentance, uh, apostasy, and then judgment, and then restoration. And it happens over and over and over again for Israel. And then in Kings, we see the, the, uh, the pattern of good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings, those who followed after the Lord and those who didn't, and the resulting uh, issues that came with that. And so we, we look at them and wonder, how could you see the miracles that you saw and forget God? How could you see what God has done for you and go make a calf out of gold uh, and, and worship that as if it were uh, the Lord? And um, you know, this is something that we look at and, and think, how can they do that? And yet we are just as guilty oftentimes as well, becoming distracted by the demands of our day, uh, the busyness of our time, our self creeps in, sin creeps in, and we ignore the commandments of God, forgetting them, forgetting his uh, provision for one another. So we may not have golden calves in our room, uh, in our homes at all, uh, but we tend to follow the God of self oftentimes, which is just as idolatrous. And we've become much like Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 32, 25. Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud Therefore, wrath uh, came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. So our text today that we're going to look at, if you want to turn there, Psalm 103 is a text that encourages us not to forget the goodness of the Lord and provision of the Lord. So if you wouldn't mind to stand as we read from Psalm 103. We won't read the entire psalm, but we'll try to touch on the entire psalm. We'll read about the first... Um, 
15 to 18 verses here. So Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to him. You may be seated. So just by way of introduction uh, to this psalm, there are some psalms in the scripture that are addressed um, directly to God. Some are addressed directly to other groups. There are psalms that are uh, addressed to sinners, psalms addressed to saints, psalms addressed to Israel, psalms addressed to the Gentile nations. Here in Psalm 103, David is speaking directly to himself. This is a, a call to worship for him, a reminder for him not to forget. So it's a personal psalm uh, uh, to himself. And in this, you see it's purely a psalm of praise and praise alone. There's no petition. He's not asking for anything in here. There's no complaint. There's no mention of enemies, foes, threats, uh, anything. He's basically reciting to himself the goodness uh, of God, uh, the magnificent reality of forgiveness and salvation, rejoicing in the Lord and remembering all that he has done for him over the course of his life. So there are many other Psalms where David does uh, pour out his heart to God and ask for things or even complain about things or pray uh, for victory over his enemies, but not here. Uh, it's one of the most joyful and upbeat psalms because it is simply in and of itself praise and praise alone. John Stevenson writes this uh, about this psalm. He, David, touches every chord of his harp and of his heart together and pours forth a spontaneous melody of sweetest sound and purest praise. And that's where we find ourselves here today. There are other psalms that as you read them and look at the beginning of them, they will give you the historical context of that psalm. For instance, Psalm 51 uh, says uh, at the beginning, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know the historical context of when that psalm was written. Psalm 54, a mascal of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And then Psalm 56, another example, a victim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So there's sometimes when you read the Psalms, you know exactly what's going on uh, in history in the context of the Psalm, but not here. In Psalm 103, this is set apart from any of the other Psalms in that sense, in that there is no mention of any historical circumstance 
when it was written, and we'll see here in a bit why that uh, might be important. So it's simply and only praise, uh, and it's for believers who, uh, according to verse 11 and 13 and 17, fear the Lord, or verse 18, keep his covenant and remember his precepts. And therefore, within that, we find it's also an implicit warning to those who do not fear the Lord, who do not uh, yet believe. So I don't know if you're aware of this. There are five books of the Psalms, five books within the book. In fact, if you flipped your uh, Bible over a couple of pages to Psalm 107, you would see probably at the top of that, the beginning of book five. So we are here at the end of book four, Psalm 103, four, five, and six are the end of book four uh, of Psalms. And they're all calls to worship, all calls to praise. So Psalm 103 begins, as we've read, bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 104 begins, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. 105 begins, O give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, uh, sing praises to him. And then 106, praise the Lord, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then even if he, as you begin book five in Psalm 107, the first line is, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So the praise that just explodes at the end of book four of Psalms seems to trickle over into book five as well. So this whole section right here at the semi-end of the Psalms are just Psalms that are loaded and filled with praise. And Psalm 103 and 04 are paired together in a sense in that they both begin with the same phrase, bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And there's the only two psalms where you'll find that particular phrase. You see, bless the Lord, plenty of places, but bless the Lord, O oh my soul, in the psalms is found only uh, in 103 and 104. And the difference between the two psalms, 103 that we just read is about God. 104, the following psalm that uses the same introductory phrase, is a psalm that's addressed directly to God. So 103, David is speaking to himself. 104, David is speaking uh, directly to God. So if you just look at 104 really quickly, immediately after the opening statement, bless the Lord, O my soul, uh, David addresses God directly. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You're clothed with splendor and majesty. And then repeatedly throughout the psalm, you will see you make, you create, you have done, and then at the end, O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. So 104, David is speaking directly to God. The, co the contrast in 103 is that David is speaking to himself. It's a call to worship for himself, as you will. Even though at the end, after he's reiterated all these benefits of God, he will call on the angels and the host of the heavens and uh, all of creation to join him in worship. And in no time in the psalm does he direct, direct his praise directly to God. And these are legitimate forms of praise. Praise directly spoken to God or praise spoken about God, which is uh, 103. So in a sense, what David is doing here is preaching the gospel to himself. You've heard that phrase before, right? Uh, and we are encouraged to do that as, as, as believers. So uh, we should be doing what David is doing here in, in this song um, in times of difficulty and trouble and depression and problems or 
even in times of goodness, it's good to preach the gospel to our, ourselves. And so those are the things that we ought to uh, in, engage in. And preaching the gospel to yourself, I'm not a counselor, clearly, um, but it is the answer, it is a answer, it is part of the answer at least to uh, depression and struggle and trials is to rehearse for ourselves the benefits of all that God has done for us uh, in his word. So in preaching the gospel to ourselves, as David does here, we should remind ourselves of the price that God paid to purchase uh, our forgiveness, remind ourselves of our deliverance from his sin and wrath, remind ourselves of his compassion and mercy, which is in this psalm, uh, how we were dead in our sins uh, and dead in our trespasses and uh, that God lifted us up out of those by his grace and mercy. Um, we encourage ourselves, as, as we see in verse 8 here, to remember that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remind ourselves that we can't uh, do any of this, uh, earn this forgiveness by our, our own merit. So we should look to Christ alone. And this is an example early on in the scripture of David preaching the gospel uh, to himself. So he reminds himself the magnitude of God's mercy to him and he's using that memory to stir his heart to praise and call himself to worship. So I want you to notice some preliminary things here before we jump too far into the, uh, the text. First thing to notice is that David is summoning his whole self to praise the Lord. He says, all that is within me. So all of his faculties are to be involved in worship. His heart and his soul and his mind and his strength, his memory, his mouth, his hands, uh, and even his emotions, to my frozen chosen in the group here. Even our emotions are to be involved. So John Edwards says there's not any true worship that does not touch the affections. So worship clearly is not solely emotional, right? We're not to, to be driven only by our emotion. Um, and how that uh, emotion or affection gets played out for each individual is different and probably for another time. But do you ever find it, it true that you are strangely unaffected in worship? That you're distracted? I hate to use the term bored, but that maybe you're bored in worship. That all of these benefits that we read in Psalm 103 uh, have been forgotten? Uh, do we have a tendency to sing without understanding and to honor God, honor God with our lips while our hearts and thoughts and minds might be uh, far from him? And doesn't this phrase that David use, uses here, um, all that is within me, remind us of the first and greatest commandment? How are we to love the Lord our God? With all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, so the entirety of our being. And so that's our love for God in the first and greatest commandment. So our worship of this same God can be no less than that, right? All that is within me. <clears throat> so again, we don't have any knowledge of any specific historical event that prompted David to write this psalm. So uh, I think we can imply from that that this psalm is not written based on some external circumstance that's going on in David's uh, David's life 
not when some good thing happened to him, when he had some victory over an enemy uh, or conquering of nations or a specific healing event that may have happened to him, some prayer answered. It's just the sheer contemplation of God in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, uh, the forgiveness that's been extended to David and by extension to us in salvation that causes him to uh, begin to remember all of these benefits and uh, the name of God's holiness. All of these things come to mind, uh, just erupting out of him with a heart of gratitude, not driven by any external circumstance uh, that's going on in his life. So our worship, true worship, according to this, all that is within me cannot be half-hearted. It just can't. Uh, we can't allow that to creep in. It involves all of our whole person, all that is within me. Uh, if there's anything that, that God hates in worship, it would be half-heartedness, right? Same would be true of our obedience or our devotion to him. How do we know that to be the case? That he does not care for half-heartedness. Well, we go to Revelation, right? Revelation 3, 14 through 16, where uh, John is in, inspired to write to the church at La Laodicea. The, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, and you're not cold, and you're not hot, but you're lukewarm. And because of that, uh, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So those are strong words from Christ to his bride, but it's an indication to us that half-heartedness in worship or obedience or devotion should never be the case uh, for any of us. All that is within me, bless his holy name. John Stevenson writes this um, uh, about this verse. All that is within me, let your conscience bless the Lord by unvarying fidelity. Let your judgment bless him by decisions in accordance with his word. Let your imagination bless him by pure and holy musings. Let your affections praise him by loving whatever he loves. Let your desire bless him by seeking only his glory. Let your memory bless him by not forgetting any of his benefits. Let your thoughts bless him by meditating on his excellencies. Let your hope praise him by longing and looking for the glory that is to be revealed. Let your every sense bless him by its fealty your every word by its truth, and your every act by its integrity. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Second thing I want you to notice is that this call to worship from David here is a call to spiritual worship. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So this is internal for him. And we have the benefit of knowing uh, from the New Testament that this is uh, what God requires. God is a spirit, and he requires those who worship him to worship in spirit and, and truth. So this is not David worshiping with external rite or ritual or a specific liturgy. Liturgy is good, we like liturgy, uh, as long as it doesn't become mechanical. So real worship is internal worship from the soul that comes from in the heart and soul <clears throat> of the worshiper. And if our heart is not moved by the recognition of all of this greatness of God that we just read about in Psalm 103, maybe it's not even worship at all, even if it's emotional, even if it generates some sense of emotion, and if it's not driven 
by the goodness of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the steadfast love of God. Perhaps it's not even true worship. Uh, third thing I want you to notice is uh, the phrase that David uses there at the beginning, bless the Lord. It's a phrase that's used uh, often in the Old Testament, 23 times, uh, I think. And eight of those are here in Psalm 103 and 104, bless the Lord on my soul. So these two uh, chapters together contain nearly a third of the time uh, that that word uh, is used. It's used only five times outside of Psalms, and it's almost always used as a call to worship. So when David say, says, bless the Lord, he's calling his heart to worship. Uh, here's an example outside of Psalms, 1 Chronicles 29, 20. David said to all the assembly, bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord. And then in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5, during the great revival in Nehemiah's time, the Levites said to the people, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. So that phrase, uh, we don't use it often. It's a little bit different than the phrase that we most often use, which would be praise the Lord, right? We don't say bless the Lord uh, very often, but they mean basically the same thing the scripture. The Hebrew word is barak, and it has to do with adoration, uh, with kneeling, or with gratitude uh, toward God. And it's used in scripture, speaking of when God blesses, uh, of any time he shows any goodness or kindness or grace or mercy to his, uh, to his people. Uh, any favor or kindness would be God blessing us. So it should be obvious to us that our blessing God is not like his blessing us. There's no advantage or benefit I can confer on God. I can't add to his holiness. I can't add to his uh, perfection. I can't do any goodness to him that would add to his happiness or contribute to his perfection uh, in any way. So I can't bless the Lord in the same sense that he blesses me. So what is this call that David uh, gives to us here to bless the Lord, O oh my soul? In what sense can we bless God? Well, we bless him simply, very simply, I think, by honoring his name. Uh, we bless him by speaking his praises uh, and adoring him. And so most of the time in the scripture, this uh, phrase is used with a connotation of praise offered with the voice. So this is talking about speaking out loud about the blessings of, uh, of God, a verbal recitation of God's goodness and greatness. Uh, we honor his name, we speak his praises, and that in, and calls us to worship. So this should be deliberate, and it should be purposeful in our hearts to speak out loud uh, with our lips the goodness and the provision of God. If you remember, most of you, I think, either said one time or another in, in Colossians through our study there, and we're reminded in the Colossians that we are to speak to each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So speak, um, speak the truths that we know about God out loud, whether it's to ourselves or to our spouse, to friends, to others. 
whatever it uh, might be. And John MacArthur writes this, uh, thinking about that particular issue. The cry in the soul to the soul is only as loud as one's knowledge of God. It's only as compelling as one's own holiness. You don't know much about God. It's a very small voice in your heart that will call your own heart to bless the Lord. Or if your life is cluttered with transgression, sin, and iniquity, then you're really going to find it hard, really going to find it difficult to call your own soul to worship the Lord. This is from the, still MacArthur, this is from the soul that has a deep knowledge of God and a love for what is holy and is pure. And the fourth thing uh, I want you to notice here is what is it that we are to bless? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. So before David begins to enumerate all of God's goodness that he's uh, going to give to us here in his forgiveness, his mercy, his steadfast love, his kindness, his compassion, before he even gets to any of those things, he focuses on the holiness of God when he says his holy name. So this is God's name here. And it's not a name like we have today, like Chuck or Rick or Bill or Joe. It is a name of God that is indicative of all he is, all of his characteristics. This is Yahweh. This is the I am. This is the sum total of who God is, all of his attributes, all of his character, all of his perfections. And you notice that David focuses in later on in, in, in the section here mostly on the goodness of God and the benefits uh, to those who fear him. But before he gets to God's goodness, he mentions to us his holiness, which tells us really that we can't understand or appreciate in full God's goodness until we have a grasp on his holiness and who he is. This is the God who is just and upright and full of virtue, who despises evil, who cannot even look on it. He is morally perfect. He is of pure eyes than to look on sin and to behold iniquity. And his holiness is what puts his goodness into perspective. So think about that for just a second. If he is a holy and righteous God that can't look on sin, he can't just act like our sin doesn't exist. Right? That would be unholy. In fact, we read this in the Old Testament in Exodus 34. He says, he will by no means clear the guilty. And then Exodus 23, God himself says, I will not acquit the wicked. Again, Exodus 23, verse 21, he will not excuse your transgression. So God, because he's holy, cannot overlook sin, cannot forget sin cannot act like it didn't happen and that's not what the forgiveness that David is talking about here is about it's not God excusing sin uh, it's not God overlooking sin that would be unholy and that's why he points us to his holiness before um, he gets to his goodness so one of the central messages of scripture as you all well know is that someone had to pay the price for this sin and this is why Christ sacrificed himself for us. We had the advantage of being able to look back to that that David did not have, did not understand fully, um, but we have the full light of God's complete revelation so that we know that Christ's death on the cross 
is what makes the forgiveness of Psalm 103 even possible. And we can understand the means by which God can remain just and still justify the ungodly, you and I. But even without having the full benefit of full revelation and full knowledge of that, David gets that in a sense and offers praise to the Lord and this is the model for, uh, for what we ought to do. Well, there's the introduction. I told Conan there's no clock back there, so we'll just go till we're done, right? All right, so let's look just briefly at the, some of the substance of our benefits that David uh, lists for us here. And there's really three basic categories uh, of them, I think. Um, and you can tell I'm not a gifted preacher because I didn't um, alliterate these. It's not all going to start with the same letter. You're just going to forget it anyway, so it doesn't matter. I didn't want to spend the time uh, to do that. But the basic categories of the benefits that God gives to us that David lists for us here would be the category of forgiveness, category of purification, maybe sanctification, and then the category of compassion. So we'll look at each one of those uh, briefly. So first of all, forgiveness. Um, Spurgeon says we could not have understood the 103rd Psalm so well unless we had first read the 32nd Psalm, which says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord, whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So the pardoned man, the forgiven man, is the blessed man. And David knew that, having written Psalm 32, and now he's uh, writing Psalm 103. Uh, so uh, in, in Psalm 32, we are blessed with the pardon of sin. In Psalm 103, we turn around and bless God for the pardon uh, of sin. So the truth of Psalm 103, which is mostly around forgiveness, to be honest with you, uh, is really uh, the heartbeat of the gospel and it's an absolutely an amazing truth and shame on us shame on me when we forget that uh, when we get apathetic about that when our hearts are not driven to worship because of that and it's significant I think that David makes this the first in the list of benefits that he uh, lists for us there in verse 3 first benefit he forgives all of our uh, iniquity and it's first in the list, not by chance, because nothing in the scripture is by chance, right? Uh, but without the forgiveness of sins, without this as the first benefit, it's impossible to enjoy any of the other blessings of God uh, in their fullness that are listed here for us. So we have to understand that God is good to all, correct? Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And Jesus said something similar uh, to that. Uh, Matthew 5.45, the sun rises on the evil and the good. Uh, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. So in some sense, everyone, every person on the earth, receives some token of God's love and goodness and provision. Even those who are his enemies and hate him, right? And we call that, theologians call that, you guys know this, we call that common grace, right? Common grace, however, is not the gospel, right? A happy life as an outside benefit from God is not the gospel. A good job is not 
the gospel. Rain falling on your garden, if you're not, uh, if you're an unbeliever, is not the gospel. Even enjoying the beauty of creation is not what the gospel truly is. So for those who are not forgiven, who don't enjoy this very first listed benefit, they can't impot, they can't possibly enjoy the benefits that are listed later on. His mercy, his steadfast love, his kindness. And so forgiveness is the blessing that makes possible um, all these other manifold blessings that flow out of forgiveness. It's the one that ensures those other blessings as well. And in fact, it would be, I would say, the prerequisite to those other blessings. Forgiveness comes before glorification, clearly, and forgiveness also comes before sanctification for the believer. We don't have to become sanctified in order to be forgiven. Thank God for that, right? Or none of us would be forgiven. Rather, God forgives us, and then he makes us fit uh, after that. It's an amazing truth. It's counterintuitive, right, to our thinking. It's counterintuitive to every other religion that says become good, then you can become forgiven and gain eternal life. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is clearly the other way around. God forgives us as far as the east is from the west, and then he will begin to conform us into the image of Christ by crowning us, by satisfying us, working righteousness in us. And so the order that David lists these benefits is vital because it proves that divine forgiveness is an act of undeserved mercy, grace, uh, unmerited. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful picture of that, I think, as well. It's important also to see regarding forgiveness that this word used here in the Psalms is a present tense verb, active, meaning continuous action. Uh, it's not a promise for the future, though it is a promise for the future. It's happened uh, for us who are believers now. John 3.18 tells us that whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 5.1 says since we have been justified by faith, we have my word now. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So continuous, present tense, ongoing forgiveness that flows from the throne. And you can read that in the, here in this text as well. Um, David says he forgives all your iniquities. It's perpetual forgiveness. And this is the implied promise of the New Testament. In 1 John 2 and Hebrews 7 where Jesus is pictured for us as the constant, tireless, advocate in heaven pleading before the throne of God making the case that God is faithful and just to forgive all of our sins all of our sins and notice here in this uh, text again David uses that word intentionally all of it there's no sin so heinous so dark uh, so outside of God's ability uh, to forgive and recall that this psalm was written by an adulterous, blasphemous, lying, covetous, prideful murderer. Right? He forgives all your iniquities. Charles Spurgeon writes about this. It is not some or many of your iniquities. That would never do. If so, if, if so much as the very smallest iniquity in thought, word, 
or act were left unforgiven, we should be just as badly off, just as far from God, just as unfit from heaven, just as exposed to hell as the whole as though the whole weight of our sins were yet upon us. Let the reader ponder this deeply. It does not say, who forgives thine iniquities previous to conversion. There's no such notion as this in scripture. When God forgives, he forgives like himself. When God cancels a man's sins, he does so according to the measure in which Christ bore those sins. Now Christ not only bore some or many of the believer's sins, he bore them all, and therefore God forgives them all. Man, what a great picture. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. God forgives. And then look how thoroughly he forgives in this text. Look at verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So uh, he's going to talk about the infiniteness of God's forgiveness three times here. This is the first. East versus west, you've heard that before. It's very familiar to us. And you probably have uh, maybe thought through the implications of what David means when he writes that. Um, it's a, just a figure of speech that expresses the idea that our sins can never come back to haunt us in any sort of way that's uh, that any context that matters about that. But how far is the east from the west? You leave here, Mount Vernon, and travel west. You can go through, let's see if I can get the order right, Missouri and Kansas, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, California. Hit the Pacific Ocean. You're still going west. You get to Asia back through Europe, back across the Atlantic, hit the east coast of the United States, still going west. You can make your way eventually back here, but you're still going west, right? And you can go west in perpetuity and never come to the end of that. Might come to the same places a couple of times. Um, and it's good that David did not say as far as the north is from the south, right? Because you can go north only so far, right? And at the pole, as you top the crest of the earth, you will begin uh, to go south. So it's an expression that means uh, just infinity, uh, that there's no, uh, there's no, uh, to the uttermost. Thank you, Ray. Right. And then he uses a second illustration uh, of that as well uh, in this same context, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Have you ever thought about that? How high is that? David probably didn't understand how high the heavens are above the earth. I think back then they thought they could count the stars, um, but they couldn't. So I read a little bit about a NASA statistic that tells us they think they know where the edge of the universe is. They don't, but they think they know uh, where it is. So here's what they say about that. They suggest that if you go 186,000 miles a second, speed of light, you could reach at the end of the known universe in 225 trillion years. Now, that's a long way, and that's how high um, the heavens are uh, above the earth and how high that vast space is that God has forgiven uh, us uh, for our sins. So I would speculate that it's uh, further than that, but that's for you scientists in the room to, to, to be out. So, And then notice in this, in this chapter how many of these verses in Psalm 103 imply or speak about forgiveness of the Lord. Verse 8, he's merciful and gracious. Verse 9, he will not always chide us. He will not keep his anger forever. 
verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. We just read verse uh, 11 and verse 12 about this uh, vast expanse of forgiveness that comes from the Lord. Uh, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those uh, who, who fear him. So the forgiveness is virtually the main theme of this uh, psalm. And all the other benefits that are listed here are, are simply byproducts of, uh, of that forgiveness comes from him and there's specifically <clears throat> I think four properties of God listed in verse 8 that are all necessary to forgiveness so we don't want to miss those uh, let me give them to you and then I want to read this uh, commentator about those four characteristics um, if we just read the verse the Lord is first of all merciful that's part and parcel of forgiveness the Lord is gracious the Lord is slow to anger, and the Lord is abounding in steadfast love. Four necessary characteristics of God that, uh, that point us to his for forgiveness. So one commentator writes this, If he were not merciful, we could hope for no pardon. And if he were only merciful, then we could hope for only pardon. But when besides being merciful, he is also gracious, this gives us a further hope hope of the gift, not what we are worthy to receive, but what is fit for him to give. And then if he were not slow to anger, the third characteristic, we could expect no patience from him. But when besides his slowness to anger, he is also abounding in steadfast love. This makes, makes us expect that he will be the good Samaritan for us and bind up our wounds and take care also for our further provision. He will be compassionate to frail sinful, weak, and temporal mankind. Church, this is why the gospel is good news, right? It's the message of forgiveness, justification, grace, mercy, steadfast love. You know, Jesus is Lord is part of the gospel, right? We would all agree with that. But apart from forgiveness, hear me clearly on this, apart from forgiveness, Jesus is Lord is not good news. Right? That's not good news of the gospel. If I'm a sinner, and he is this holy God that's been portrayed for us here, and he is uh, the judge of sin, and I remain unforgiven, that's not good news. That's not good news at all. That's a problem. So the message of forgiveness is what makes, uh, is the component that, that makes, makes that uh, the good news. And this is not... Uh, just some cold academic doctrine that David is purveying for us here. Uh, it's very practical. In fact, one of the things you could do when you read this would be to read these verses to yourself and substitute the word me or my, where David uses the word your. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgets all my iniquity. Who, for, who heals all my diseases, who redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies me with good so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. So it's very personal, very practical, and it can drive our hearts uh, to worship. Spurgeon says, when I read about this text, he says, I don't feel like preaching when I touch this text, 
I hardly wish I could just sit down and have a happy cry that my God at this moment is forgiving me. Matthew Henry said something similar. This psalm calls for more devotion than exposition. So the second category then, first category being forgiveness, the second category of benefit that the Lord provides for us that are uh, enumerated here in the psalm would be um, purification, perhaps sanctification, however you might want to term that. If you look at verse 3, it says that he heals all of our diseases. He forgives our iniquity and heals all our diseases. Now this verse, along with uh, the verse in Isaiah 53, has played uh, an important but probably unwarranted role in some systems of theology that would read this verse and take it to mean that if we have been saved from sin, then we have a right and, in fact, a guarantee of physical healing. Um, that's bad theology, I think. We can make the case for that. Uh, it's simply not true that those who are forgiven are spared from any sort of physical malady that might come our way. Believers do get sick. Believers do die. God does have a purpose for illness in the life of believers. So the context, I think, and how we would need to understand this would be that David is not talking primarily, primarily about physical uh, diseases. The theme throughout the, the chapter is redemption from sin, and its power, and so the context would suggest here that diseases would be um, the spiritual maladies uh, that sin causes for us. So it's not that God doesn't heal, right? Don't hear me say that at all. He does heal, and all healing, even the kind that we get through the doctor or through prescription medication, is brought about by divine, divine providence. So I think David has in mind here more a kind of uh, spiritual healing that would picture the removal of the power of sin, purification or sanctification, if you will. And another we reason I think we can uh, make the case for that is that this is poetry. And if you're familiar with Hebrew poetry, they often uh, write in parallelisms. So a repeated thought uh, to mean the same thing, rhyming of thought, not necessarily words. So in verse 3, uh, iniquity and diseases may rhyme in Hebrew. I don't know. They don't rhyme in English, but the thought rhymes, right? So it's a, a reiteration of the same thought. <clears throat> and it's the same thing, the same uh, damage gets done with the verse I mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53, and it's the same concept there. It reads, he was wounded for our transgressions, sin. He was crushed for our iniquities, sin. Upon him was the chastisement, parentheses, for sin that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So parallelism in Hebrew would indicate that the context there as well is uh, healing from sin, not necessarily spiritual, uh, not necessarily physical healing. I'm sorry. So it's not just the guilt and penalty of sin that's taken away from us in forgiveness that we've mentioned earlier. He's talking about um, deliverance from the power of sin as well. And you can see that in the text in verse 6. The Lord works righteousness. When we are forgiven, he begins to work righteousness in us. And that is the fruit and the goal of Christ's atoning work. It doesn't stop just with justification, just with forgiveness. 
goes on to sanctification and purification as well. We know this from Titus. Chapter 2 in the New Testament, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So forgiveness and justification followed by purification and sanctification and always, always in that order. Category 3, the benefits that David lists for us here would be uh, compassion. So in verse 13, we read that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. This is not some sort of uh, patronizing, sarcastic, uh, pitiful thing that the Lord uh, grants to us. Speaking of God's tender-hearted compassion of his, um, uh, his love toward his people, like a father's toward his children. It's even hinted at earlier in the chapter, uh, in verse 4, the second half, about crowning us with steadfast love and mercy. So um, he, he delights, God delights to satisfy us with good things, to demonstrate his compassion to us and provision for us. And this is a theme that is replete throughout the scripture. A lot in the Psalms, but not solely in the Psalms. Listen to these talking about the compassionate satisfaction because God delights to satisfy us with good things as we enjoy him as the center of our life. Listen to these verses from other places in the psalm. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 17, 5, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your, uh, with your likeness. Psalm 23, you know this, he leads us in green pastures besides still waters and he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Psalm chapter 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Psalm 107, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And it's not just the Psalms, right? God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the God who satisfies, the God of Psalm 103 who satisfies. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Blessed are you who hunger now, or you shall be satisfied. And then finally, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Spurgeon says, no man is filled to satisfaction but a believer. No man can be filled to satisfaction but believer, and only God can satisfy even him. So the question for us is, are we satisfied uh, in the Lord? So again and again, Scripture uh, emphasizes uh, his goodness as our compassionate provider. And know what it says, that uh, what does he satisfy us, uh, what does he satisfy us with in verse 5? He satisfies us with good, with good things, not with rich things necessarily, not with many things necessarily, not with everything we need, but with 
good things, good things. So bless the Lord, uh, oh my soul. But I want to know one other uh, expression of God's, um, the, this infiniteness of God's uh, forgiveness that we've uh, seen here expressed in his compassion. So we've seen that God forgives as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And then notice um, in verse um, 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting <clears throat> on, those, uh, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So what does it mean in this third expression of infiniteness that God's love is on us from everlasting to everlasting? Well, it means that as long as God has existed, he's had a covenant love for his people. Didn't start when you believed. His love for you did not start when you believed in Christ. Never a moment in the mind of God that he didn't love his own in eternity past, from everlasting, to eternity future, everlasting. Uh, so before anything ever existed, except the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, God, had a full covenant love extended toward those who would believe, uh, and even though they had not been created. So bless the Lord, O oh my soul, for that as well. So from electing love in eternity past to glorifying love in eternity future, we are loved by God, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, uh, loved before time began, and loved when time on this earth is over as well. So. This love that David uh, breaks into worship for here is passionate from God. It's emotional from God. It's parental. It's protective. It's vast. It's constant. It's omnipotent. It's infinite. It's active. It's beneficent. And it's infinite to the point that it will never change. So he has always loved you, and he will always love you. So David finally then is not satisfied that he alone should praise God. And he turns his thought there in verse um, 20, 21 and 22 to calling the whole of creation uh, to praising the Lord. Praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, all his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So church, if that section, not me, not anything that I've said, if that section of scripture does not drive your heart to worship, if you're seeking satisfaction from anything other than these benefits that are enumerated for us here, then our call would be to repent from that and ask God to renew our hearts, uh, to fill us with gladness and joy of the God who blesses and provides forgiveness, mercy, grace, steadfast love, and provision. So finally, just by way of application for two groups of people that would be uh, possibly in the room today, two believers in the room, fellow church members, uh, have you forgotten? Is your heart ever cold with apathy uh, and forgetting these benefits of the Lord? Do you lean to spiritual lukewarmness? Are you truly captured by the benefits of God that David lists for us here? He reminds us here, never 
forget those. Never forget. We should worship the God who is righteous and just, who is compassionate and gracious. We should sing to the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who does not treat us as our sins deserve. Bless the Lord. The one who is eternally merciful to those who fear him. So listen, nothing so clearly demonstrates our remaining indwelling sin as <clears throat> the ease at which we forget the benefits of God. Let me say that one more time. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our remaining sin than the ease with which we forget such staggering love and blessings from the God. So church, don't forget. Don't forget these blessings. So the second group in the room, to those of you who may not have ever put your faith in Christ, unbelievers in the room, do you have a share in these blessings that are listed here? The text tells us that none of these benefits will be yours until you fear God by turning to him in repentance and faith. Frighteningly, he will deal with you <clears throat> according to your sin. He will repay according to your iniquity. Your transgressions are not removed and they will be remembered. So if you have not experienced the forgiveness of sin, it comes through Christ alone. Today is the day to do that, to turn to him in repentance and faith and to uh, accept this free offer of forgiveness that David extols uh, in the scripture. So bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.